0: Here we are on Magical Medical Tour with my co-host, Dr. Glenn Woolman, and special guest, Dr. Rachna Patel, a specialist on medical marijuana. We're going to discuss its possible addictions, methods of consumption, policies, and safety regulations. This and more is coming up next on Magical Medical Tour. Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma with our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Dr. Woolman.
1: Greetings, Christina. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. Uh,
0: I'm very excited today.
1: Yeah, because we're going to be talking with someone very special, Rachna Patel. She's a doctor of osteopathic medicine, but her specialty is in medical marijuana. Mm, So this could be a really fun episode. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your medical guide along with Christina today as we explore another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. And today we are searching for optimal health and we're going to see how medical marijuana may improve our health.
0: Yes, we are on for that, aren't we, Glenn? <laughs> <coughs> now, at any time during the show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Now, if you are listening to this on a podcast or um, uh, through your device, just give us a call at 818-LET'S TALK. 818-LET'S TALK. Thank you, Glenn.
1: You're welcome, Christina. Thank you. you now, let me ask you a quick question here. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> When we speak with Dr. Patel, she obviously has a large clientele of people that are looking for Mm. alternative ways of uh, taking care of certain health issues. I'm wondering what you would guess would be the average age of her clients and patients. Hmm.
0: Hmm. My my guess is um, mid-40s and over.
1: Hmm. Okay, well, we're gonna find out at some point I will ask her that question and if I don't remind me,
0: okay, I will ask it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. That was interesting. I would think uh, I would always think that you would be thinking not you, but everyone would be thinking, oh, people in their 20s and 30s.
0: Yeah, be- I mean, I think I would have thought that way, but but just knowing what's been happening out there in the world today where a lot of the young kids are into the other types of drugs, Mm-hmm. That are out there, like the the ecstasy and things like that, which is uh, gives them so much more of a buzz, and you right. know, whereas whereas marijuana tends to mellow you out, you know, and uh, it's it's cool, but it's not that cool, right?
1: Well, well <laughs> so I don't know. I
0: feel the older generation just wants to mellow out.
1: <laughs> uh, well, they're also we're going to find out that uh, you know there are different types and and brands and uh, products. That don't always mellow you out. So, those are going to be some of the things that we're going to be looking at and talking to Dr. Patel about. So, she is a doctor of osteopathic medicine, and uh, she has decided to make her practice strictly in the specialty of medical marijuana. So, without further ado, I want to get into this topic very quickly. I'd like to introduce everyone to Dr. Rushna Patel. Greetings, Rushna.
2: Greetings. Uh, thank you for having me on the show.
0: Well, hello and welcome, and thank you for honoring our community. We're very excited yeah, about this yeah. topic. <laughs> yeah. It's it's great because, you know, we I think we come from a generation where marijuana is the no-no. You know, it was like, right. oh, no, no, right. we don't right. talk about mm-hmm. that. We don't want our kids to be going into it, things like that. And now you're seeing all over the medical dispensaries, like all throughout Canada as well, and, and we mm-hmm. were like so surprised. It was now it's 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 a hot topic now. It's yeah,
2: wonderful. T- totally a hot topic, yeah. And for good and, and, and it's a good thing, I yes. think ultimately. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm right with you on that. So
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> Hopefully we're going to decide that today. So Rajna as the medical guide, I always like to give our audience uh a path that we're going to be taking. First we wanna find out a little bit about you. Sure. And uh why you went into medicine and healing and then we wanna find out why you decided to become an osteopathic physician and then obviously we want to get into why you decided to specialize in medical marijuana and then we're going to talk about uh, the state of the art right now in terms of a practice and hopefully we'll be able to give a lot of people some great information today. Is that good with you?
2: Sounds fabulous.
1: Beautiful. So let's start just simply to find out the heart and soul of Dr. Patel. What got you into the idea of wanting to be a healer? Who were the influences? When did it happen? And what brought you to this place?
2: Sure. So a lot of it has to do with my background in terms of uh, my, you know, socioeconomic status of of my parents. So they were immigrant parents. Um, they uh, had blue collar jobs, and they worked really hard to get my brother and I a solid education. So we I've had this very unique life experience in that I grew up in an inner city um until the age of twelve, and then I had the privilege of moving to um, affluent suburbia, where I went to one of the the best ranking schools in the state of New Jersey. um at the time it was like third in the state or something like that. so and then I had the privilege of of going on to Northwestern University and then medical school in California. And I saw all of this as a privilege. And so ultimately, being someone that um, uh, has had the experience of living in an underserved community, um, I knew that I wanted in some way to impact change, having had these privileges. And so that's more of a, I would say, spiritual level. But at a more practical level, I was always good at the sciences, and so um, it was something that I was always fascinated by. I was I was a kid in high school that gave up her lunches to work on science fair projects, mm-hmm. and so um, uh, I, you know, medicine and this purpose seemed like a, a great way to um, to meld all of that.
1: Beautiful. So now we we had an interview with Dr. Timothy Schultz he's a doctor mm-hmm. of osteopathic medicine episode 28 so he gave us a lot of the training for that what is the training actually to become an osteopathic physician <sighs>
2: Um, Sure. So it's very similar to training for um, an allopathic physician, um, except that you learn an extra tool. And that tool is um, osteopathic manipulative medicine, where you're learning to adjust the bone structure, the muscle structure, um, so that, um, uh, you know, you're kind of working outside in um, instead of inside out. So you get both of those perspectives.
1: And is there a specialization in in areas within osteopathic medicine?
2: Yeah, there certainly are. Um, I would say that there are um, fellowships in um, osteopathic manipulative medicine. Um, the unfortunate thing, though, is only about 5% of um, graduating medical students pursue that. So there aren't too many um, physicians that practice solely in osteopathic manipulative medicine. And I think a lot of it is for economic reasons as well. Uh, a lot of insurance carriers don't cover um, that, that form of treatment. So it's, a, it's an out-of-pocket expense for patients. I see. Yeah.
1: So how long did you practice uh, osteopathic medicine? I mean, I know you're still essentially practicing it, but you moved your practice into the specialty of medical marijuana. Uh, Was that from the beginning, or did you make a choice to go out of a certain type of practice and go into this? How did you make that choice?
2: So my background's in emergency medicine, but I never practiced in emergency medicine. I I went straight into the area of medical marijuana.
1: And why did you choose that out of so many different possibilities? What did you see in that area that made it important for you as a physician to choose that?
2: Sure. So one of the things that you see all the time in the emergency room is um chronic pain um you know people have back pain people have abdominal pain people um have all sorts of pain that that they come in with and one of the standards uh, as an er doctor was you 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 prescribe two things you tell them to go follow up with their primary care doctor And then you hand them over a prescription for a highly addictive medication um, like Norco, for instance. Now, again, being an emergency medicine doctor, I also had a unique situation of seeing the opposite end of that where... I ended up resuscitating patients that had overdosed on these opioids. So there was something about that that really bothered me at the end of the day. You know, one of the things, I made it a practice on my drive home to ask myself, okay, did I impact change? Did I serve my ultimate purpose? And when I was handing out prescriptions for these medications, it just it, it didn't sync well with me because it didn't really feel like I was actually helping them to to solve a problem. In fact, it was like, okay, you know, I I feel like I'm creating more problems. Um, And so that's the thing that I really honed in on. I happened on an ad um, in, on Craigslist. I was just surfing around on Craigslist and I happened on an ad that said medical marijuana doctor needed. So I got very curious and I started um, uh, doing research both on the field itself, but then also on the science behind medical marijuana. And having, used it myself when, you know, around the age of 20, I knew that it worked well for insomnia. I knew that it worked well for anxiety, but chronic pain is something that really caught my attention that, um, you know, I always felt like as, as it, as it stands in conventional medicine, I don't feel like we have good options for chronic pain. And this was definitely something that, um, that, that I felt would, would help to serve that purpose.
1: So when we talk about uh, specialization in emergency medicine, people take residencies in this. uh, People do extra training and fellowships and and all of the different specialties. And we all know that there's not really a training program in medical marijuana. We're going to talk about what's going on now uh, publicly and in research, science, and everywhere. But how did you decide to become... An expert in medical marijuana. What was your process? There were wa- there wasn't a lot of research, uh, and there certainly weren't residency programs in it. So, what was your path to becoming an expert?
2: Sure. So, um, I spent a good year, I would say, um, uh, for delving into the studies, reading the research. You know, just hanging out on PubMed.gov. Um, and that gave me a good idea behind the preliminary, um, uh, you know, the, sort of the, the foundational science behind marijuana. And then um, it, it, any good clinician needs clinical experience, right? And that's what what um, uh, traditionally that's why you go through residency training because that's when you really solidify that knowledge that you've learned. So I decided to work at a medical marijuana clinic um, out in Sacramento, they had a position open, so I just went for it. I wasn't quite sure of what I was getting myself into, but the purpose was was that I need to gain additional experience now working with patients um and and i I was actually taken aback by a lot of results um and that's what really kind of kind of convinced me that you know this is definitely worth pursuing um, and, and those results were things like patients coming off of um, pharmaceutical medications um, and and using just marijuana to help manage their pain and in my mind i had it that okay maybe medical marijuana is a good adjunct therapy but in fact it was the therapy um, uh, and it and it replaced a lot of the pharmaceutical medications that patients were on um, and also in patients where conventional medicine didn't offer a good solution um, like for instance uh, with uh, patients with epilepsy you know they're on medications that are highly sedating. So that impacts the quality of their life. Um, Whereas with medical marijuana, not only were they able to, um, were the seizures well-controlled, but then they had a good quality of life because it's not, it depends on dose, but it's not a highly sedating medication if you take the right dose of it. Uh,
1: And we're going to get into that. I remember at one point, uh, maybe about six or seven years ago, I was approached by A small clinic that was trying to uh, put out marijuana for the students around one of the universities where I work. And they asked me if I would be willing to do that. And I was certainly interested in talking to them about it. But the thing that was important to me was I needed to continue to practice real medicine. And I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just prescribing for everyone that walked in. Right. no matter what they had you know i didn't want to treat a student saying oh, i have my final exams i need marijuana i'm too stressed right. out mm-hmm. uh, so i said to them well i need to be able to be a doctor and and take a history and do a physical and mm-hmm. make a diagnosis and if i don't feel that marijuana is going to help then i don't want to prescribe it to that person i would prescribe something else and they said to me Uh, no, 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 no. Anyone that walks in there, we want you to prescribe marijuana. That's the purpose of this clinic. Right. So so that's an important part to me. And obviously I, well, maybe not obviously, but I chose not to work there because I still wanted to practice medicine. Um, So what we have now, and I want to talk about what you're going to do, but let's talk about a little bit of the research and the science of the cannabinoids and the THC and everything else what's what's the state of the art right now in terms of the science and research? What are we looking at? What do we not know? And what do we know?
2: Sure. So we know that we have what's called the endocannabinoid system in our body. We have receptors for cannabinoids. Um, and these receptors are, uh, the ones that we know of, are called CB1 and CB2. CB1 is mainly um, located in the central nervous system. CB2... Um, is uh, more concentrated on the immune cells of the body. Now, they interact with a couple different uh, what are called ligands, right? So these are molecules that interact with these receptors. And they can come from three different places. So we make our own Cannabinoids are called endocannabinoids, um, the most uh, well-known of, of which is called anandamide. Um, and a very interesting name, the, the researcher who discovered this um, decided to call it anandamide because the root ananda means bliss in, yeah. in Sanskrit. Yeah, so that's really interesting. Um, the other thing is is that um, there's uh, chemicals in the marijuana plant that are very similar in structure to these endocannabinoids, okay, and primarily the ones that have been well studied so far in the marijuana plant are cannabidiol, so it's um, called CBD oftentimes, and um, delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, so THC. That's the the one that's better known. And then the third place that these chemicals can come from are when they're created in a lab synthetically, right? So um, those are medications that we do have available. They're, um, as far as I know, they're class two substances um, uh, per the DEA, the the Drug Enforcement Administration. And uh, the names of these medications are Nabilone, Dronabinol, uh, more commonly known as Marinol.
1: These are the ones that maybe the people on chemotherapy. Those are the mm-hmm. ones. Those are the ones that those people are getting in hospitals. Nobody in hospitals right now is getting uh, marijuana as if we would get it off the street.
2: No, no. Um, And you have to, for medications like dronabinol and nabilone. you do have to have a prescription for it. Um, And mainly it's approved for patients with cancer and patients with HIV. Those are the two main populations that they've been approved for.
0: So, so I have a question. So, what sure. you, what I'm hearing, what I think I heard you say was mm-hmm. the the medications that they are actually that are actually in hospitals um,
2: <clears throat> for the cancer and HIV patients. Those are all synthetic. Synthetic. They're made in a lab. And here's what I found clinically. Okay, mm-hmm. so I do have patients that have been prescribed these medications, mainly cancer patients, and what they find is is that. They are experiencing a lot of side effects from these medications. Okay, so typical side effects that you'd experience from high amounts of uh, consuming high amounts of THC in a marijuana plant. Um, those include dizziness, um, uh, heart racing, oftentimes um, uh, even um, uh, psycho the psychoactive effects. So, so euphoric effect that can also turn into uh, hallucinations as well. And so, what these patients find is that using the marijuana plant itself. They experience more of the medical benefit as opposed to um, uh, more of these side effects as well. And one of the reasons that may be is because the other chemicals in the marijuana plant are helping to sort of tone down the side effects Mm -hmm. of the THC. Okay, so so that's what I found
0: clinically. Interesting. Well, that's what I was about to ask because, Mm -hmm. you know, in a lot of Asian or Oriental medicine, Mm-hmm. I have to say Oriental because that covers Ayurvedic and the Chinese and the Japanese and the Korean. Yeah. Um, once you start to break down the plant itself mm-hmm. scientifically, yeah. you've lost the balance of the right. alchemy of that plant. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. they are actually finding this with the uh, marijuana as well. That mm-hmm. um, if they create the synthetic form of just those few components, it does not work as well as if they use the natural form. Is that what I'm
2: hearing? Right, exactly. Yeah, Brilliant. you got it. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah.
1: However, there is more research, and this is part of the whole process of what's going on. Basically, uh, my understanding in doing the research uh, and speaking with uh, Dr. Jeff Block, who we... Uh, Interviewed in episodes 125 and 127. He's an anesthesiologist, mm-hmm. a master sure. gardener, horticulturist, <laughs> and now he's actually uh, consulting with legislations and doctors to provide uh, programs to teach doctors how to, to prescribe medical marijuana and to help legislators. Uh, to determine guidelines of how we're going to study it, research it, and use it, because there's a lot of complicating factors going on right now. Mm-hmm. Christina, we have in medicine, we have uh, the Substance Controlled Act, and uh, there are different schedules that each different type of medicine uh, c- falls under. And in the area of marijuana, it's actually a Schedule One. Uh, class drug, which means it can't be prescribed by anyone. That's why they in the Schedule II drugs, like the opioids, but in the Schedule I drugs like marijuana, mescaline, LSD, heroin, things Mm -hmm. like that, those cannot be prescribed. And that's what we're looking at in the research now to find out more about that. It's been uh, because of the prohibition and the legal aspects of what's going on. We haven't been able to do the research that we're finding out now. Uh, Dr. Patel has mentioned the ligands and the cannabinoids and the endocannabinoid system within the body. This is all things that are just coming to bear right now. And that as we progress through and as people like Dr. Patel are doing more and more working with uh, patients that are using different types of marijuana and different uh, levels of the CBDs versus the THCs. We're f- we're going to learn more and more about the actual perfect way of prescribing something, and we're going to talk about that a little more with Dr. Patel. So continue uh, in your process of the research.
2: Um, sure. So that's that's basically the foundational uh, science of it. And then um, uh, I've also delved into specifically, uh, you know, different conditions. What's the sort of biochemistry as to how marijuana helps? So an example of this would be with multiple sclerosis, for instance. Uh, Marijuana has very potent anti-inflammatory properties. So in the future, I see it as uh, having a lot of uh, benefit to patients with autoimmune conditions. Um, So specifically with... um, uh, with uh, multiple sclerosis, what what's been found in mice is that um, m- uh, marijuana actually um, targets the specific microglial cells that are attracting the um, the myelin sheath on the nerves, um, and it and it sort of deactivates them. So, uh, and the interesting thing is is that it does something similar with cancer. Again, in mice, um, what's been found is that. Um, cancer cells, certain types of cancer cells produce more receptors for cannabinoids Okay, and so um, the the cannabinoids are able to specifically target the cancer cells um, and they work in a a couple ways. Number one, the cannabinoids are able to um, uh, hinder angiogenesis and what that is is that every tumor has a blood supply, right? So if you cut off that blood supply, you're preventing it from growing. So that's one of the things that's, that's been shown and specifically how the cannabinoids target um, these, these cancer cells. So it's, it's fascinating. The research is really, really fascinating. And unfortunately, it's something I never learned about in medical school. But, you know, you go back to these research studies, um, some of them date back to like the 70s even. Um, and I'm, I'm surprised that, that uh, you know, no professor took the time to, to teach us about this in medical school.
1: I think it was because of the uh, public opinion and the legislative right. attitudes that this was an illegal drug. So, why, sh- why should we be talking about it other than in terms yeah. of an overdose or a bad reaction, just like heroin? Right. So, what I'd like to do for a few minutes uh, is talk about what you're doing on a daily basis, mm-hmm. go through that whole process. And then at the end, I want to talk about a little bit of the future and how policies are going to be created guidelines for the practice of medicine because there are many medical doctors out there that are certainly aware of what's going on but mm-hmm. very reticent to start prescribing anything except for the oncologists who are treating, uh, as you said before, the cancer patients. So sure. if, how does a person find out or even think about the idea that marijuana might be good for their issues?
2: Um a lot of it is through family and friends. Um it's been in the media a lot recently. So typically um I do get referrals from doctors, but most of my patients are coming on their own having um you know done done research on Dr Google and um they they want to know more about it and basically the point in their journey that they're coming to me is that they've already been diagnosed they've tried conventional medica well they've tried over the counter medications conventional medications they've even tried alternative therapies as well and nothing is really you know quite cutting it for them so as they'll come to to me looking uh, to to use medical marijuana as a last resort and specifically they're looking for information on okay how do i use this because I've heard you can get a high from it, or when I used it back in college and high school, I did actually get a high from it, and, and I don't want that experience. What I want is the medical benefit of it. And so that's the main reason that they're coming to me. I'm walking them through how to use the marijuana specifically for their medical conditions. Um, being that I'm also in the state of California, I also issue what are called medical marijuana cards as a part of the consultation as well.
1: When somebody comes into you now, let's walk through the process a little bit. Mm-hmm. You yeah. still, as part of the medical guidelines that are being written, and it's very interesting now because we have states that are starting to uh, consider being a little more liberal in their use of marijuana, but we still have the federal government that says, yeah. no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, illegal. Uh, so states... Medical boards and osteopathic medical boards are trying to devise guidelines of how a doctor like yourself or myself might choose and practice uh, the uh, pers- well, you can't prescribe as we discussed, right. but the suggestion or the recommendation of medical marijuana. So somebody comes into you and you start the process where you develop a relationship, doctor patient relationship. You take a history and physical. And what are you looking for in that history and physical that's going to determine whether you do or do not uh, choose to recommend?
2: Um, So basically, you know, I I look for... I'm looking getting a history on what they've already tried. You know, have they have they tried over-the-counters? Have they tried pharmaceuticals? Now, in this specifically in the state of California, it's not a requirement that they failed these other therapies in order for me to recommend medical marijuana. But I just sort of want to get an idea of what's been tried, what hasn't been tried, what's worked, what hasn't worked, what sort of effects did they get, you know, benefits versus side effects. So I get a good overall picture of of where they are in in this you know this medical journey and then um uh, if i feel like okay you know this this person is well suited to use medical marijuana and I feel like it's going to benefit their medical condition, then I go ahead and issue a recommendation. There are certainly cases that come in where I feel like the medical marijuana won't benefit them. You know, there's rare cases uh, where patients come in and they say that, you know, I have this condition. Like, for instance, I found in cases of severe spinal stenosis, severe shingles, the medical marijuana just doesn't help. Um, and so, you know, I'm pretty honest with them in, in that situation that, look, I've treated these patients who have severe cases of shingles, severe cases of spinal stenosis, and it actually hasn't helped them. So that's the discussion that I'm having with them, setting up expectations that, you know, what can we expect from the medical marijuana? Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's the gist of the uh, consultation. And,
1: and who are the people that you, aside from uh, herpes zoster or shingles and severe spinal stenosis, are there people that that fall into a category other than that that you decide should not be treated with medical marijuana?
2: Oh, certainly. Okay. So the patients that I'm cautious with are patients with certain heart conditions because um, uh, specifically THC can uh, cause palpitations. So I don't want to exacerbate any sort of dysrhythmias um, or any sort of heart disease that the patient may have. Um, Patients with certain lung conditions, I I strongly recommend to them, do not smoke marijuana, do not vaporize marijuana. We don't want to exacerbate your existing lung condition. And then the third group of patients are patients with a... A, a pre-existing history of uh, psychotic episodes um, and generally these are patients who've been diagnosed with bipolar disorder with schizophrenia um, I, I make sure that they're being followed by a psychiatrist that they're compliant with their current uh, psychiatric medications and um, Sometimes I don't feel comfortable recommending it it to to them. Um, And when I do, I'm very careful as to to letting them know, okay, this is what you want to use. This is how you want to figure out dosing, okay? And this is how you don't overdo it um, so that it can lead to psychotic episodes, further psychotic episodes. So those are the three main conditions. I also don't recommend uh, to to women that are pregnant, to women that are uh, breastfeeding as well. Mm
1: -hmm. What about uh, someone that just comes in and says, I have chronic pain, and they have a legitimate chronic pain, but in your history and uh, physical examination, you find out they also have an addictive personality. Is that something that would concern you?
2: Um, You know, here's the thing with... with, uh, Yeah, so let's let's talk about addiction and marijuana. I think that's an important topic to cover. Um, I have found that marijuana certainly has potential for addiction, but in terms of numbers, okay, so, um, and this is based on, uh, I, I can't cite the title of the study, but based on, on a research study, heavy users of nicotine have a 33% chance of um, uh, getting addicted to it. Heavy to, users- to marijuana? To nicotine nicotine, right, so I'm trying to put it into perspective in in in, in comparison to other substances So yeah, I, nicotine, didn't understand
1: what you, I didn't understand what you said when you said thirty percent
2: yeah thirty three percent of heavy users of nicotine. Okay. Have a potential of getting addicted to it. Okay, basically, thirty-three okay. percent of users of nicotine get addicted to it. Okay, um, for opioids, that number falls somewhere in the twenties. Okay, for marijuana, it's about ten percent. So there is a potential for addiction. Now, the interesting thing with marijuana is that it's a fat-soluble medication. Okay, so even if so, even if you stop taking it cold turkey, it's not like you're going to get. Um, uh, uh delirium tremens like you do with uh, with uh, someone who's an alcoholic. And for anybody that doesn't know, delirium tremens is you know when you're shaking profusely. Um, uh, so uh, in in heavy users, yes, there's a potential for addiction, but the way I'm teaching my patients to use it is in moderation. so not taking it more than once a day. And I've found that most patients don't need to take this more than three times a week at most. They can certainly take it a lot less. As well so, so that's how I'm teaching them to, to take it now in someone who has um, a, a history of abusing substances, I mean it's a case-by-case basis mm-hmm. um, but uh, you know I haven't actually had too many of those patients in my clinic, um, but um, I, I, you know I, in most cases I sort of give them the benefit of the doubt like, because I'm walking them through how to use it so that they don't get addicted to it.
1: What's the average age of your patients so that Christina can stop worrying?
2: <laughs> so um, 40 and above. So any, between 40 and 60 is average. And then I do get patients all the way up into um, their, their 90s um, even. Um, I rarely see patients in their 20s and 30s unless it's something severe, a severe condition that they have.
0: I won the jackpot.
1: You did. (laughs) (laughs) You get. Wow, that
2: was a good guess, huh?
1: That was a great guess. Doctor Patel will send you a a baggie. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) A a, a trial dose. Okay, so so now you've got someone who comes into your office. You've examined them. You have a doctor-patient relationship, and you start to talk to them about. And and you come up with an idea that this is going to help them. Mm -hmm. So now, as you alluded to earlier, there are many types of uh, products, so to speak, and there are many ways it can be taken. And the science, you know, if you smoke something versus eat something versus have a patch versus having something else, each one does something different. So how do you make choices for your clients and patients?
2: So I found by medical conditions, certain methods of consumption will work a lot better than others, okay? And a lot of it also has to do with a lot of practicality, okay? So, for instance, flowers, what's commonly known as bud. um, From just a practical standpoint, most of what you're going to find is high in THC. Um it's it's going to be rare to find really really high concentrations of CBD in flowers. So for anyone that would benefit from higher amounts of CBD that would obviously not be a good method of of consumption. Um for sleep for instance I found um ingesting is the best method of consumption. Um So a couple factors, um, uh, kind of play into it. So one is what medical condition you have. Right. And also, you know, what's your background? Like, do you have a history of COPD, for instance? Do you have any sort of underlying, um, uh, uh, heart conditions? Um, so that factors into, into method, method of consumption that I recommend. Um, practicality is something else. Um, and, uh, what else? Um, You know the combination of chemicals that um, that would benefit these patients. Um, So there's a lot of factors that go into it, and also each method of consumption has a different onset of action. You know, um, uh, inhalation takes effect right away, within minutes, uh, whereas edibles can take up to two hours to take effect. Also, the duration of um, how long the effect lasts is different for every method of consumption. So. Uh, the effect of inhalation sort of trickles off after about four hours. Whereas if you ingest it, it lasts in your system about six to eight hours. So uh, all those factors sort of go into how I'm um, figuring out, okay, you know, this method will work best for you. This combination of chemicals will work best for you. Um, So, yeah.
1: Break down just for a few moments. Uh, Mm -hmm. Let's go off on a side path for a minute. You've talked about the THC and the CBDs. And we may even find that there are more... uh, and yep. uh, as we start doing the more research, uh, we're going to find more. But break down where someone would benefit more from the THC particles versus the CBD particles. Sure. Uh, which which uh, symptoms or signs or conditions are ones that people should look for, depending on what they have?
2: Sure. So um, CBD in general is a very potent antispasmodic. So specifically for conditions of pain, um, it it tends to work really well for that, especially if the pain is muscular in origin. Um, Also, THC is a very potent appetite stimulant, and it also um, helps uh, uh, very well in suppressing nausea and vomiting, right? So Just uh, taking those properties, someone who has, like someone with multiple sclerosis who gets a lot of spasticity would benefit a lot more from. Um, uh, something that's high in CBD, whereas someone who has cancer who's undergoing chemotherapy would benefit from, some, uh, from um, a product that's high in THC. So those are, those are just some examples. Now, there are circumstances where you'd benefit from both those chemicals as well, because together they have what's called a synergistic effect, um, and they amplify each other's effect when you're, they're given together. Um, in inflammatory conditions, for instance, um, uh, that's where I found that, you know, equal amounts uh, tend to benefit patients. So it just really, again, it varies um, uh, depending on on medical condition and whatnot. Um, so, so, yeah.
1: All right. So now you made a decision to give uh, someone something. And when I see someone in office, when you would see someone in an office, somebody has a a bacterial tonsillitis, you decide they're going to have an antibiotic and you write Mm -hmm. a prescription for uh, amoxicillin, 500 milligrams, three times a day. And when they take their prescription, they go to the pharmacist and they hand the pharmacist a prescription and they know that they're getting amoxicillin, 500 milligrams, three times a day. Right, right. What are since we don't know everything yet, and the, we're not sending people to real pharmacists that have been trained, we're sending people to right. uh, someone else, how do we guarantee that what you have decided through your expertise is actually going to happen, and how do you prescribe?
2: Okay, so that's the biggest struggle as a physician that I have in the industry. Um, it's, it's, it's not a well-regulated industry, okay, when it, from the medical standpoint. Um, it's becoming more and more of a well-regulated industry in states where medical marijuana has been deemed legal for recreational use but in the states where it's legal for medical use it's, it's, it's kind of a hit and miss and that's where I kind of have to um, my, I make myself available to my patients so that they can follow up with me and we're, you know, we're, we're making sure we're selecting the right product. So a little bit of background now in States like Colorado, States like Washington, uh, and I believe Oregon as well. Um, ever since marijuana became, uh, uh recreationally legal, they have implemented laws where they're now mandating testing uh, of these products. And specifically they're testing for the combination of the different chemicals, number one. Um, they're testing the, uh, the raw material for, for uh, levels of pesticides and fungicides because they have found toxic levels of certain pesticides and fungicides that can end up becoming, you know, for instance, like a neurotoxin, for instance, uh, okay. which you don't want to do. Um, they also test for fungus and bacteria as well, because if, if anything's not handled properly, then, you know, you're putting yourself at risk of getting infected with like salmonella and E. coli. In the state of California, um, the medical marijuana has been, um, uh, deemed legal for the past 10 years, but there haven't been many regulations in terms of, uh, testing. Whatever testing is being done is being done on a voluntary basis. It's sort of becoming the standard in the industry. And so this is specifically what I'm walking patients through. Okay. So how to read a label, how, how to ask the right questions so that you're making sure that you're walking out with the right product. So I'm empowering them to make sure that they're selecting the right product. I'm here to support them through that, that process. Um, at, what typically happens is that the, the people that are hired behind the counter at dispensaries, a lot of their experience comes from using marijuana for a really long period of time. It doesn't come from, you know, having a scientific background um, sort of thing. So uh, so that that is a frustrating challenge for me as a physician. Um, and I'm also restricted as a physician, too, because um, the law, the federal law says that as a physician, I cannot aid or abet a patient in obtaining marijuana. Um, so that that makes it, it, it doesn't make sense to me from a logical perspective. I mean, there may be some reasoning behind it, but um, there's a lot of different uh, uh, practical challenges that I do deal with. But I try my best to, to educate um, and then, you, you know, use that so that my patients are making better decisions for themselves.
1: So what you're saying right now is that, for example, uh, going back to Western medicine or allopathic medicine, if if the pharmacist looks at something and the pharmacist is trained and they may know the uh, patient also and they say, well, you're taking this medication, you shouldn't take that because they don't work well together, or... Yeah. The pharmacist has an issue with the dosage. The pharmacist and the physician will have a conversation. So what you're saying right. to me now is that you can't call one of these dispensaries and say, this is what I want for my patient right now, I w- right?
2: No, I can't. I can tell my patient what they should ideally be looking for, but no, there's typically no sort of conversation like that. It ha- the, the, the patient is the in-between
1: and how and just before we get into how we are going to change policy, what kind yeah. of a an example of a recommendation would you say would you say have have this product that has two parts t h c one part c b d one one part c b d two what what yeah. are you saying to them
2: i I am walking them through um specifically the the you know uh what what ultimately matters when it comes to marijuana are the ratios, okay? What and specifically the ratios of the CBD and the THC. Um, mm-hmm. Those are the chemicals that are made in high concentrations in the plant, as far as we know at this point in time. So right. so that's what ultimately matters, and that's what I walk my patients through, and I I teach them how to figure out that ratio, how to read the label, um, so that they know that they're that they're getting the right product because. It's, it's amazing the, uh, how you will get the effect that you completely don't want if you buy the wrong product. Um, so that's what I'm teaching them, um, you know, label reading. I'm teaching them how to, um, there isn't, any standards of dosing for marijuana. But you can. I'm teaching them a methodology to figure out the right dosing. And I found that dosing, just like a lot of prescription medications, dosing varies highly from patient to patient. But I'm teaching them specifically how to figure out the right dose for them. I'm also teaching them, you know, how frequently do you want to, to be using uh, the marijuana, specifically for uh, for you, for your condition. Oftentimes what I find is that patients are overusing the marijuana. And what does happen is that you get what's called receptor down regulation. Okay. So basically the body stops making a lot of these receptors for cannabinoids because it's overwhelmed with the amounts of cannabinoids. And then you're not getting the the effect that you actually want. So, so that's another thing that, that I walk them through as well. Um, I walk them through, you know, what to do in case you have side effects and what are the side effects, how to avoid the side effects. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's just like, like regular old medicine, you know, walking patients through medications. You know, what? How, you know this is the, the the dose I want you to take. This is how often I want you to take it. These are the potential side effects, you know, what to do in case you have side effects. So I treat it just like medicine. You know, when patients walk into my office, I tell them it's, it's just like any other doctor's appointment. We're going to sit down. We're going to go through your history. I'm going to walk you through how to, how to use this medication. And then I'm available if you, um, uh, you know, if you have questions.
1: And then when you... Uh... When you talk about uh, the uh, receptors down-regulating, mm-hmm. uh, this is part of the issue in the research that has to happen. We can't just uh, do the research on the plant itself and the products of the plant. We right. also have to do it in combination with how the body is going to respond. After yes. someone down-regulates yes. their receptors and they stop the medication, will those receptors come back again or will they not? Does it depend on whether it's with... Uh, this product or that product. When you talk about the labels, yeah. um uh, what do they what does a label say on it? Give us an example of what a label might say.
2: Um sure. So it it varies from product to product. Again, because well, in, in specifically in the state of California, it varies from product to product. They do have standards in Colorado and, and Washington and Oregon, I believe. Um, specifically in California, what I've seen is that they'll they'll put that the product has been lab tested, if it's been lab tested Um, they'll put down the amounts of the different chemicals. And the one thing I don't like is they put down a suggested dose. Um, that, that bothers me because, um, dosing I found varies, uh, based on, on the individual, on the medical condition. And so, and typically that suggested dose, it's arbitrary. It's not based on science. Um, and it's typically too much. Um, especially for something like an edible um, or what are called tinctures, which are, you know, um, uh, drops that you use sublingually. Um, So that's typically what you'd see. Now, there's a lot of mislabeling going on as well, um, because, again, there's no oversight on the labeling process. So say uh, a product is high in THC by numbers, it could very well, even if it has a small amount of CBD, it'll say high CBD, so, whoever's purchasing it may be mistaken to think, oh, this is higher in, in CBD than THC, but it's actually not. It, by numbers, it's higher in THC. So, it's really tricky. There's a lot of marketing. Um, I feel like that needs to be well regulated. Uh, I feel like I'm making enemies <laughs> well, through this interview. <laughs> no, I think on the but, other
1: hand, uh, you know, I'm looking at it as you're one of the people on the frontier right now that's going to pave the way for a lot of the research and things right. like that. So, yeah. I think one of the important Important things for me is how you follow up your patients. Yeah. Uh, that's going to determine policy. Uh, you say that you're available to them for phone yeah. calls. Do you actually have follow-ups with them where you say after you've taken this for two weeks, I want to see you in my office again?
2: I haven't, from a practical standpoint, I haven't found, uh, the need for these patients to have a formal appointment with me. Um, there are some patients that prefer that. And so they're welcome to come into my office and make an appointment. Um, for the most part, they're quick questions that, that patients will ask me that, Hey, you know, they didn't have this product available. What do you, what are your thoughts on this product instead? Or, um, you know, I, I, uh, Uh, taken, you know, this much of a dose, but it hasn't really had much of an effect, or I've taken a dose and I'm starting to experience side effects. So there are quick questions where I can answer them pretty quickly. So I do just, um, uh, tell them that, you know, um, I'm available during these times, um, to answer your question. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, from a practical standpoint, that's what I found, but there are follow-up questions. Um, and that following up is not a standard in the industry. Um, I mean, it's sort of a, an industry without standards at this point, both mm-hmm. from the the end, uh, the the dispensary end of it, as well as the medical end of it, as well.
1: I think, from my point of view, as a physician, and especially as all of the states and and. Uh, legislations and the federal mm-hmm. government are trying to determine guidelines one of the things that we would all benefit from the work that you're doing the few pioneers that are willing to do this is to actually add to add to your practice the specific follow up so that information as we develop state and uh, federal guidelines yeah that to me is going to be very important uh, in, in determining how we do these things later on, because you're saying that, you know, the labels are not regulated, this isn't right. regulated. And as we do more and more research from the scientific point of view of the drug and, and the human uh, body, we're going to need a, a large database from people like yourself that are actually doing the follow-up. Um, so that would be something that I would think that would be very important in uh suggesting to people that are going to have a practice like yours that follow-up would be critically important because especially at the point right now where we don't know all of the science and we're not sure of the marketing and the labeling and and the dispensaries that the most important part of protecting uh... the patient is following up and saying oh wait i'm looking at this medication that they gave you and it's wrong and now we need to get data to them what's what's the christina
0: uh, i've kind of Mm -hmm. taken over here (laughs) i told you it's too exciting (laughs) do you have any questions um i have so many no um um i we hear a lot about you know the I, i know i i was just speaking to uh uh someone from canada that's an attorney and um you know they work on as they call themselves ambulance chasers right that um, okay. they're having issues right now with um, being able to test people who are driving under the influence of right. MM. I call it MM yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah. medical marijuana, yeah. um, mm-hmm. and it's like. Uh, and he was just informing me that now they have these these saliva tests, but it's still not fast enough. They need something a little faster, like the alcohol
2: test, right? Right. Yeah. So. From a scientific perspective, here's the thing. Again, it goes back to the fact that marijuana is a fat-soluble medication. And from research, uh, it shows that a single inhaled dose can last, the chemicals can linger around in your system for up to 30 days. So with alcohol, you can tell right away, you know, what what period of time the alcohol has been consumed in. With marijuana, you can't tell. Now, I know that there's a couple companies that are um, in the process of developing um, uh, uh, breathalyzers, Um, For uh, marijuana, I I haven't really delved into um, what the the science behind it that they're using, but it would be beneficial because marijuana can impair your coordination, and specifically in California, you can get a DUI. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if they find that you're driving while under the influence of marijuana. So with multiple, with my patients, I make it clear to them that you do not want to be driving while under the influence of marijuana. Now, this also holds to be true with prescription medications as mm-hmm. well. Like, for instance, if you're on Ambien, you shouldn't be driving while under the influence. So it's not like it's just substances like alcohol and marijuana, um, but it's even with certain prescription medications that you don't want to be driving while under the influence. Yeah.
0: Um, what, any news about, uh, traveling?
2: Yeah. Traveling is really tough. And that's a question that I get often. Yeah. So, uh, I've looked into this, some, um, and the TSA specifically has made a statement on their website that we're not really looking, uh, for, for marijuana. I mean, they're, they're, they're looking for bombs, but, um, <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> and so, so if sure. basically they've stated on their site that if, um, so somebody is found to have possession of marijuana, they're going to hand it over to the local government, okay? So if you're in a mm-hmm. state like California, um, and if you have your paperwork with you, you should be okay. If you go to a state like Colorado, if you're found in possession, again, you should be okay. Mm-hmm. But if you're in a state like Alabama or like Georgia, for instance, then you may run into some trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, traveling, traveling internationally, same thing. If you go into, again, it. This is just the TSA, which is the United States. You know, you have to sort of also abide by the, the rules and regulation of the country. That if you're going out of the country, the rules and regulations of that country, what are their rules and regulations? I know for Uruguay, for instance, has legalized um, uh, marijuana mm-hmm. um, for both medical and uh, recreational purposes. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, you have to sort of uh, follow their laws. Interesting. So, state yeah. By, and state by state as state well. State yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, even but, with that card, the medical card.
2: Yeah, so there's no reciprocity from state to state. The card mm. that I issue is only valid in the state of California. Only... To, so there is there is reciprocity, I believe, between Arizona and California, but I don't know how well-informed people in California and Arizona are to accept each other's um, paperwork.
1: Rukta, I'm very curious. As we move forward uh, in medical marijuana and the science and the research and the policies, are you involved with other doctors that are doing this so that you're comparing notes and having chat rooms and and figuring out the information together to help the legislations in the states and federal governments improve their guidelines?
2: Um, No, I'm not. Now, here's the thing. The industry, like I um, alluded to before, has, has had a very shady start. And so when I first got into the area of medical marijuana, I found that a lot of doctors that were in the industry were in it because they were, you know, looking to make an income on the side because they had just retired, Um, or they had some issue with their license so that they couldn't practice in conventional medicine. Um, There are far and few of us. Um, it, you know, in between in terms of uh, doctors that practice in the area of medical marijuana. So, uh, and you know, there are some formal groups that have started. Um, but uh, no, it's nothing like, like you'd find in conventional medicine with like endocrinology conferences and cardiology conferences. So that is definitely um, a hole in the industry.
1: I'd love to see you start something like that. You're doing so much in terms of the frontier, getting in with people, because I know it's happening everywhere. But this has been very exciting, a lot of great information. There's a lot more to have. But we're coming to the end of our show, and I wonder if you have a personal health tip for our community.
2: Um, I I would say moderation is key when it comes to everything, even marijuana. (laughs) Mm.
1: Okay. I like that. I've always heard the one, uh, moderation, everything, including moderation. (laughs) Any, is there anything that you were preparing to talk about, uh, when we decided to do this show that we didn't cover that you would like to say in the last remaining minute or so?
2: No, I think we, we covered the whole gamut, you know, like we can cover the medical side of it, the legal side of it. Um, the the practical aspect of it, uh, the science behind it. So we've covered, we've pretty much touched on basically all of it. So it was a great conversation.
1: In that case, thank you very much. We're grateful to our very special guest, Dr. Rachna Patel, for sharing her wisdom, expertise, and very unique experiences with us. I want to thank all of my teachers and healers for taking me on my journey and Christina and Yoga Hub and Segovia for all that they do for our society. And I look forward to seeing you all again next time when we get together on Mag- Magical Medical Tour as we explore another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. Thank you very much, Dr. Patel, thank and you. for the rest of you, I wish you all optimal health.
0: Wonderful! Thank you so much, Dr. Patel. This was thank you. Amazing, this was amazing, yeah. really amazing, and 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 I hope this will reach many people who you know are curious who you know, who are against marijuana, I, I sure hope that people come to terms with, and also the educational part of it, uh, we, we can keep following up to make yeah. sure that, you know, our audiences around the world start to start to acknowledge it and, and be more informed of their decisions.
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And of um, course, I'd love to yes. put, um, once you have the video up, um, I'd love to put uh, a video up on my website for, for people to view. Wonderful. And I can also put it up on uh, my social media sites as well. Excellent. Thank
0: you so yeah. much. And, yeah. and more to come. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. not the last we're hearing from you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're going to rein you in here. <laughs> uh, we just had too much fun. We just have to have more fun now. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. <laughs> great. And of course, we would like to do- thank Dr. Glenn Woolman for another great show and each and one of every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. You can connect with Dr. Glenn Willman through his website, glennwoolman.com, where we encourage you to learn about his metaphor square breath. Or you can follow him on Facebook at The Medical Guide, The Medical Guide. And if you'd like to connect directly with Dr. Rachna Patel, you can do so through her website, dr. dr. Rachna Patel r a c h n a p a t e l dot com. Dr. Rachna Patel.com. And of course, we are always grateful for any feedback, comments, and suggestions that you might have. Um, and also, if you would like to comment or ask questions. Uh, for this show, do so just by typing into the little comment box and we will make sure to get it to our special guest or Dr. Woolman and uh, shoot you off an answer. Or if you're listening to this through a device, give us a call at 818-LET'S TALK. 818-LET'S TALK. Thank you so much again for joining us and until next time, namaste.